0: Before we begin, two quick disclaimers. Um, first of all, I had to change up my recording technique for the podcast. You are now, we can hear you again. So especially you, Trish, you're right beside the computer. So anything you say and do can be held against you in the court of the internet. So just be aware of that. Uh, previously, we had a, a line running into the computer and it pretty much only picked up me. Uh, but the sound with my new computer is, is terrible, so now it's live, so just beware. So that's disclaimer number one. Disclaimer number two, um, last week was not a sermon. If you remember, it was kind of a story of of um, Saul's conversion, and today's part two of that, I'm not, I promise, I'm not going to always do this, um, go back to sermons as you understand them. <coughs> Um, soon. Right away, but this, I I had always planned to do a part one and a part two. Part one was Saul, and part two was Ananias, um, who is kind of um, an unknown figure in the story. Uh, And so I've taken lots of liberties with his story. I researched him lots. There's all kinds of traditions about Ananias, that he was one of the 72 that was sent out by Jesus in Luke 10, that he became a bishop of Damascus, that he was martyred in um, uh, Luthopolis, I think is what it was called. It's in there. Those are all traditions. We don't know for sure about any of them. But I've used them all to kind of flesh this story out. So we'll we'll get back to sermons soon, but um, I wanted to write this for today. Uh, When the arresters pounded on my door, I did not run. I did not scream, nor weep, nor beg. I did not flinch. Instead, I closed my eyes tight, and I prayed. I prayed for strength for myself and my wife. I prayed for the Spirit to give me the words to speak to the Jewish council when I was dragged before them. And I prayed for forgiveness for those who persecuted us. Then the door was burst open, and still I didn't flinch. I only paused my praying when one of the arresting guards slapped me hard across the left cheek and ordered me to be silent. Rising from the floor, with blood beginning to drip from my nose... I opened my eyes and met the gaze of the one who had struck me. He was a young man, maybe 25 or 30. He wore a low red turban, a white robe held together with a leather belt, and a condescending sneer, like the cat who bats at its prey before finishing it off. He reveled in his power. His hands had just demonstrated what his eyes communicated effortlessly, pitilessness, ruthlessness, and savage hatred. The other two soldiers with him stayed back in the entranceway, hands on the hilts of their swords, dutiful and patient. They were just doing their job. This leader, however, he was fulfilling his passion, rooting out faithful Christian believers and dragging them back to Jerusalem for questioning, arrest, and execution. My blood and my life were in his hands, and he squeezed them with his fist. My death was what he lived for, my death and the death of any other follower of the way that he could find me. Which is why this hateful stranger reminded me instantly of a friend of mine. A dear friend of mine. A friend of mine who was once a mortal enemy of mine and who then became my brother in Christ. I was reminded of Saul of Tarsus. Saul had once mirrored this young man's zealous loathing of those who proclaimed the name of Jesus. He had once taken the same enjoyment in punishing Christians for their faith. That was Saul's life up until three days after he encountered Jesus. That was the day that he met me. The soldier struck me again, and I heard the rattling of chains. I had offered no resistance, and yet my hands were being forced roughly behind my back. My hands. The same hands that had been gently laid on Brother Saul. The same hands that served as conduits for the Holy Spirit to fill and strengthen the great apostle. Now those hands chafed and burned against the iron as the temple guard hoisted me to my feet by the shackles. They mocked me as they dragged me out of my house. Seems your Lord has chosen you, they said. Chosen you to suffer, that is. You'll follow your Jesus. You'll follow him right to the beams of the cross. I didn't shiver or quake at these words. Actually, I broke the gentlest of smiles through the searing pain of my beaten face. I remembered the Lord calling me to go to Saul, urging me that Saul must be shown how much he will suffer for my name. He had learned of suffering, all right. I suppose it was now my turn to be honored as faithful enough to injure martyrdom. But the smile I cracked didn't go unnoticed by my accusers. I was struck once more, this time not with an open hand, but by a cruel, punishing fist. I reeled and staggered and watched from my knees as they did the same to my wife. At this, I prayed out loud for strength, for her and I, as well as forgiveness for my oppressors. The soldier raised his fist, and I presented my other cheek. He accepted the offer. For a moment, I saw only popping lights and fuzzy images. I saw my wife also kneeling and praying. I saw the other two soldiers chain her hands as well. I saw a collection of neighbors drawing away across the street, away from danger. I saw the lead soldier, the image of wrath and fury, descend on me with a black sackcloth in his hands, which he draped over my head. And then, for the longest time, I saw nothing. Nothing at all. I was a man in the dark, but filled with the light. Blinded for the moment, but aware nonetheless of goodness and power and truth. Again, I was reminded of Brother Saul. My blindness wasn't the result of ignorance and self-righteousness being seared away by the glory of Jesus' powerful grace. That, That was the story for Saul. My story, my blindness wouldn't fall like scales into my hands. For me, my blindness was external, a hood, like one being executed. And I suppose that's fitting. I have been sent to the city of Lutheropolis, city of the free, as it translates. How ironic. I will spend what few days are left of my life chained up in prison here in the city of the free. But in truth, the freedom I feel can never be contained by jail cells, prison bars, shackles, or crucifixes. I have no fear. I am at peace with my fate. Of course it grieves me deeply that my hands will likely never again hold my wife, nor will my eyes ever again see my children and grandchildren. Nor will I have another chance to break bread with fellow believers in Damascus, where I've led the church for the past 25 years. In the darkness of my prison, I pray for all of them. But if my life is soon to be spent, then there is much to be thankful for. My hands have done good work for the Lord. My eyes have seen His goodness, His power, and His glory. It's an honor to follow my Jesus right to the cross. And follow Him I have, for the past three decades, in fact. Like Saul, my first encounter with Jesus was on the way from Jerusalem to Damascus. Like Saul, I was unprepared to meet the fullness of his power. Like Saul, I would never be the same after that first meeting with the Son of God. Let me tell you about it. I had been in Jerusalem for three weeks, my wife and children in a small caravan, meeting with family and bringing sacrifices to the temple. On our return journey, we stopped in Bethsaida, which was about halfway between Jerusalem and our home in Damascus. There in Bethsaida, my cousin asked if we wanted to go see the teacher, and I knew exactly who he meant, not the local synagogue rabbi, but Jesus of Nazareth. I had heard rumblings of his work and his words. I was interested, so I agreed. Our families headed out to the hills near the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where an enormous crowd had been gathering since sunup. We arrived early in the afternoon and took our spots to hear what Jesus had to say. Instantly, instantly we were drawn in and engrossed by his teachings. I was a well-educated, well-respected leader in my own home synagogue. I was a man of prominence. But I had never heard someone speak so clearly from the scriptures. Every word he spoke brought life to my soul and plumbed new depths of truth. We were transfixed. And yet, the crowd began getting restless. It was getting near supper time, and no one had planned for a meal. The teacher's disciples were getting restless as well. They continued to interrupt Jesus, motioning at the crowd and motioning to the lowering sun. It would seem they were asking him to respect the lateness of the day and the hunger of the people and send everyone home. But nobody wanted to go home, least of all me. I was only vaguely aware of my hunger. In fact, the more he spoke, the more I hungered only for his word. My children, however, were tugging at my cloak and asking for bread. I had none, and neither did anyone around me, except for one little boy, about forty feet up from me, who had a small basket. I saw one of Jesus' disciples talking to the boy that had taken the basket to Jesus. That's when the murmur of the crowd ceased, and all eyes fell again on the teacher. Jesus took from the basket five small loaves of bread and two fish, barely enough to feed even his twelve disciples, let alone a crowd of thousands. But he prayed to his father, and I remember that distinctly. Nobody addressed God as father like that. Nobody, no matter how great of a rabbi they were. But he addressed God as father and he asked his father to satisfy satisfy those who hunger and to bring glory to his name. He then lifted the food up and broke it, before giving it to a couple of his disciples to pass around. People didn't know how to react. Some snickered, others seemed tense with anticipation. As the basket came to me, I looked inside with my own eyes and saw merely several split loaves and a few strips of fish. With my own hands, I took some of each, passed them to my family, and then ate my own. My eyes were open and my hands worked just fine. But something miraculous happened. I can't explain it. I couldn't believe it when I passed the basket down the line and watched the next family take their fill as well. And then the next family after that. And the next family after that. And then the small huddled group of widows, followed by the timid tax collectors in the back, followed by yet another family and then a priest, and then a man with an ugly-looking skin disease reached in, who passed it to a beaded woman who had solicited my cousin and I the night before as we collected water from the town well. All kinds of people, from all walks of life, were there to hear Jesus, and each one of them was given bread and fish. They were hungry, and he fed them all. From something small came something glorious, and it was that night, with the taste of fish and bread on my lips, and the words of the kingdom echoing in my heart, and the sight of Jesus and his miraculous bounty burned like a flash into my memory, it was that night that I knew I was chosen. I knew that I was changed. I never went back to Damascus, at least not right away. My wife and children went home with the caravan, but I lingered, eager to soak in more time with Jesus. Eventually, and Luke the Evangelist can verify this, a group of 72 of us were sent out by Jesus to proclaim the kingdom and prepare the people for the arrival of the Son of Man. I didn't feel worthy enough to be included, but there I went. We experienced great triumphs and humble rejections. I participated in the exorcism of demons through the authority of Jesus' name. I was alive with the power of his grace and truth, a servant of the kingdom and an ambassador for the Most High God. Not long afterwards, of course, he was dead. I had returned to Damascus by then and had been steadfastly working to draw attention to the teachings of Jesus. And so the news of his crucifixion staggered me. But it was followed by news of his resurrection, a return to life, and reports of some of my friends having actually seen him with their own eyes and felt him with their own hands. Not a ghost or a phantom, not a corpse or an imitator, but him. Really him, Jesus Christ, alive in power, and glory, and grace. And I wished I could have seen him. For years I wished it, in fact. Every day I would go to the synagogue and proclaim him, often debating with other Jews in the city. And every night I would return home, hopeful that he would appear before me as I heard he had appeared to Thomas and Mary and Peter and many others. But my eyes never beheld him. My my hands never touched his nail-pierced wounds. My eyes and hands were busy, of course, looking for ways to build his kingdom far from Jerusalem, in what felt like the edge of the world, Damascus. And then, before long, Jerusalem came to Damascus. Those believers who fled from Jerusalem spoke of terrible things being done to the followers of the way. They told us of our friend Stephen, of his brutal execution and his powerful witness to the Jewish high council, of his strength in the face of martyrdom. It was Stephen who first mirrored Jesus' words from the cross when he said, Lord, accept my spirit, and later he said, please, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Jesus prayed those things, Stephen prayed those things, and I have been praying these things endlessly in my prison cell here as well. Accept me and forgive those who do this to me. He has given me strength through these words. The Lord does indeed accept even the greatest of sinners into his kingdom. The Lord does indeed forgive even the most violent and ignorant and selfish of sinners, even those committed against Jesus himself. I know these things are absolutely irrefutably true. I know this because I know my friend and brother, Saul. Saul. Saul was the chief reason why many Jerusalem Christians were fleeing to Damascus in the first place. Saul and his cohorts on the Sanhedrin council were the reason Stephen was forced to pray that his spirit would be accepted. Saul was the one in need of forgiveness for the blood of an innocent man. Many innocent men and women and children. Saul was the wolf, tracking and hunting believers before devouring them alive. And yet, Saul was accepted by Jesus. Saul was forgiven by Jesus, just like Stephen prayed. Saul was called by Jesus to stop persecuting the Son of God and began serving him instead. And I've got to play a role in all of that. I mentioned how for years I wished I could have seen Jesus in his glorious resurrected state. I missed that. I missed seeing him. But I did get to hear him. And one night in particular, the words he spoke to me were absolutely shocking. Even here, as I await the end of my own life, I'm filled with radiant joy the memory of that call. That day I had spent hours in the synagogue teaching and debating. It's probably no coincidence at all that the scroll being read from that day was from the prophet Isaiah, where it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a light to the Gentiles. A light to the Gentiles. Sounds like Saul. To open eyes that are blind. Sounds like Saul. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known along unfamiliar paths. I will guide them. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord? And in hindsight, sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Anyway, it was a long and exhausting day at the synagogue. I returned home and ate with my family before retiring to bed. I must have been asleep only a few hours when I was awakened by a voice calling my name. It wasn't my wife nor any of my children. It spoke gently, but with great authority. Ananias. I was awake and alert at once. The voice, oh, that voice. It reminded me immediately of roasted fish and crusty bread and wicker baskets. It reminded me of the crisp breeze coming off the Sea of Galilee in Bethsaida. It reminded me of power and glory, acceptance and forgiveness. It was the voice of Jesus Christ, and he was calling me, Ananias, a joyful servant in a remote place far from the action in Jerusalem. Unsure of what he could possibly want with me, of all people, I responded with simply, Yes, Lord? The voice gave me a very simple command. Go to the house of Judas on the street called Straight. I myself lived just off of Straight Street, the major road which ran east-west through Damascus, bearing goods and traders across the Roman Empire. I was familiar with Straight Street. I had grown up on Strait Street. And so far, the instructions were simple. But I was then instructed further to ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, who was praying and who was anticipating a man named Ananias to come and place their hands on him and restore his sight. Now this was a very direct command from the Lord. Specific location, specific task, specific guidelines, and one very specific name that caught my attention, Saul from Tarsus. I may have been from far out in Damascus, but that name meant something, even here. And it wasn't a name that I was in a hurry to get mixed up with. Saul's credentials as an enemy of the believers were strong. He was a zealot and an extremist, seizing every opportunity to punish and persecute the church, to persecute Jesus himself. In fact, word had reached us in Damascus that Saul had been issued permission from the Jewish High Council to come to our city, in which the largest population of believers outside of Jerusalem could be found, and take the unprecedented step of extraditing Christians back to Jerusalem. Damascus was way outside the realm of authority of the Sanhedrin. It's possible, in fact, that if Rome found out what Saul was up to, that they would punish him severely. He was out of his league, but that mattered little to him. So intent was he on crushing any last remainder of Jesus from the earth. Many of my Christian brothers and sisters, old and new alike, were terribly afraid of what might happen when this Saul character arrived in town. His reputation had preceded him. I presented this concern to the voice of Jesus. It sounds silly, now, Though he is the almighty master of creation, the author of all good things, and the holy judge of all people's hearts, still did I wrestle with the idea of meeting my enemy. And so I said weakly to him, uh, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name as if Jesus didn't know all this already. And so the voice spoke more authoritatively to me. He said, Go, he ordered. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I was taken aback. I was shocked by this plan. This man was your choice? How does that, how does that make any sense at all? It would take a miracle to convince this man to proclaim Jesus rather than persecute Jesus would take a miracle. Little did I know. But the Lord sensed my apprehension. True, this man had been dedicated to persecuting the church, to persecuting Jesus himself. Like the officer who burst through my door, struck me and sent me off to die, it was Saul's purpose and passion to make believers suffer. And now, as Jesus said, Saul was going to get a taste of that suffering himself. The voice told me, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. At the time, the words were reassuring to me, calming to me. An enemy will know the pain that he's causing me and others like him. It felt like vengeance, like justice. It felt like Saul getting what he deserved. What I thought he deserved. But now, as my shackled arms ache, and my welted cheek stings, and my eyesight remains blinded, and my life seems nearly spent, well... I realized that the promise Jesus made to Saul, that he would learn how much he must suffer for my name, wasn't a promise of vengeance or payment for a life of villainy. In fact, it's a reward. Those who are truly faithful go to the cross. As Jesus said, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you aren't my disciple. Saul wasn't going to suffer because he had done wrong. He wasn't going to suffer because he deserved it, and neither am I. I'm not in chains because I was a poor follower. Jesus himself knew the cost of obeying the Father. Cups of suffering, crowns of thorns, crosses, and blood. But the reward for all of this is glory. Saul suffered, and I'm suffering, and Jesus suffered, and all Christians suffer, because that's the cost of true discipleship. And only the truest disciples come through on the other side of that suffering with their battered eyes looking to him and their swollen, shackled hands reaching up to him in praise. It's an honour to be called worthy to suffer for his name. And so I got dressed hastily and scampered out of my door, heading down Straight Street, looking for the house of Judas. After finding it, I was immediately welcomed and brought before a closed door. I paused before I knocked. The large part of my mind trusted the voice of the Lord that this would work out okay, but a small part of my mind lingered on, it's a trap, or this can't be right, or this isn't fair. But I took a deep breath and I knocked anyway. The voice inside was very weak and strangled. It sounded as though Saul hadn't eaten or even drank for days. But there was a strength in that voice nonetheless, urgency and anticipation and hope. I heard him croak out, come in this way. I am Saul, a new man living in a new light. And so I opened the door and I beheld my enemy. The man, this man, had been sent to my city to find people like me and pluck them like a mustard plant in a garden and stamp them under his feet. That was his purpose just three days earlier, and I knew this. But he didn't feel like an enemy any longer. He was short and balding, even at his young age. There were lines on his face, the deep lines that are formed on the faces of those who study voraciously with grim determination. He didn't look like someone to be feared. But as I stepped closer, those lines melted into a hopeful smile. You must be Ananias, he said. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I crossed the room to his bed. For a moment, I was too shocked to speak. But I remembered the words of the Lord to me in my vision, that Saul was awaiting me to place my hands on him and restore his sight. I didn't know how to restore sight, but I could certainly put my hands on this man. So that's what I did as a start. And immediately, I felt a surge of power, unlike any I'd ever experienced in my lifetime. Even when I was touring Galilee with 71 other disciples, casting out demons, even then, I never felt this power. This was different. And the strength didn't just come through my hands, it came through my voice as well. My first words to Saul were, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. As I said it, I felt his chest well up, like one prepared to solve I, too, was nearly overcome with emotion. I was aware of what the Spirit was doing here. The first words that this transformed believer would ever hear from a fellow Christian were words of belonging and acceptance. You are my brother. He was once an enemy who came to lay hands on Christians in order to capture them and kill them, send them to jail. Now, he has hands laid on him in order to welcome him into the family. He is brother Saul. It's not conditional, it's not temporary. Saul, the enemy of Jesus, was now a brother. If he can be a brother, anyone could be a brother or sister. But the Holy Spirit continued, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may again see and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At those words, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. i would never really seen anything like that before. And for the first time, as a new man, he saw the face of a friend. He saw me. Experiencing the light of Jesus had cleansed him and called him and made him see truth in a new way. Now he saw the whole world with new eyes. At my urging, we went down to the courtyard in Judas's house where there was a small fountain to baptize this powerful new brother in Christ. But despite his weakness and his hunger, Saul insisted on trekking a half mile down the road, down Straight Street to the Abana River, to be properly baptized in the manner of John. He was stubborn from the beginning. After being baptized, Saul ate some food. Bet you can guess what he ate. Some bread and fish. As I had seen all those years ago, at the multiplying of the bread and fish, just like then, with the return of physical nourishment, came true spiritual nourishment. As strong and determined as Saul was in his previous desire to destroy Christ, He was now doubly strong and doubly determined in his desire to declare Christ to whoever would listen, Jew or Gentile alike. I spent quite a great deal of time with Saul over the next few weeks as he preached in the synagogues and argued for Jesus. He was a man of tremendous power, filled as he was with the Holy Spirit. Despite my high standing in the local community, Saul quickly outstripped me and surpassed me, and for that I am thankful.
1: He had a hunger
0: for more, however, and Damascus couldn't contain him. Eventually he snuck off for Jerusalem. My last night with Saul was bittersweet. He had truly become my brother, and it's not easily that one says goodbye to a brother. I knew the Lord would take him to amazing places in his service, but I needed to look him in his descaled eyes one more time and put my hands on his head one more time and share a moment of hope, joy, and love together one more time. That memory fuels me, even now, as I await death in my son. I am truly thankful. I am a nobody, a nobody with shackled hands, but these shackled hands delivered the Holy Spirit to the greatest evangelist the Church has ever known. I am a blindfolded nobody, but I am the nobody who opened the eyes of the one who could see Jesus in new and beautiful ways, even ways that the Gentiles could understand I am the nobody who first called Saul a brother in Christ, no longer a persecutor, but a proclaimer of Jesus, no longer an enemy, but an evangelist, no longer a villain, but a victor in the body of Christ. I am the nobody who suffers with my brother Saul and with my Lord Jesus Christ in order to bring glory to his name. I am Ananias, and though my life is soon spent, it has been spent well in service to my king and his kingdom. I was blessed to be called to turn an enemy into a brother. I pray my life inspires others to do the same. All right. Again, a lot of liberties taken there. Nobody knows when Ananias died. Nobody knows uh, if he was, in fact, really one of the 72. Nobody knows. There's a lot of liberties taken. But I love the image of this nobody, this faithful believer like you and I, serving in some corner of the kingdom, being called to be the one who, through this nobody, Saul became Paul. His life did a 180, and he fully repented, and he fully believed. And the one who got to open his eyes and call him a brother, put his hands on him and open his eyes, was this Ananias. What a beautiful story it is for us. that Not only is there hope for anyone, as there is hope for Saul, but there's hope for anyone to be involved in his kingdom and to do good works for our king and for his kingdom. That's that's kind of the, the message of Ananias. Um, so, Ananias, if you're listening to this, sorry if I screwed up your life story. I apologize. Um, but let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the power of your name that it turns enemies into brothers and sisters. I pray that each of us would... Um, Be faithful to your call to love others into the kingdom. Thank you that we've been loved into the kingdom, that other people have been like Ananias to us and have welcomed us, unworthy as we are, broken as we are. Thank you that we can be brothers and sisters in your your family. Thank you for the story of Ananias, how somebody very small and out of the way uh, played a, a crucially important role in your kingdom, that... He overcame his biases um, and his preconceptions about Saul in order to love him and welcome him. Um, It's a great example for us all to follow. And I pray we would follow it. Um, Help us to do so, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name alone.